1: To get started, visit plushcare.com
2: slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds.
0: Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life, four good and one bad, that they'd like to put in a time capsule. My guest in this episode is the actor Jenny Seagrove, who many people first saw in the great film Local Hero, released, would you believe it, in 1982. Jenny has since appeared in dozens of films, such as Moonlighting with Jeremy Irons, Nathan Hayes with Tommy Lee Jones, Appointment with Death, the Poirot film with Peter Ustinoff, Lauren Bacall and John Gielgud, A Chorus of Disapproval with Anthony Hopkins, Bullseye with Michael Caine and Roger Moore, Miss Beatty's Children, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, Another Mother's Son with Ronan Keating and John Hanna, and Off the Rails. On TV, she's been in everything from Endeavour to The Woman in White, including Crown Court, The BRAC Report, Diana, with one of our former guests, Kevin McNally, A Woman of Substance, The Betrothed, Peak Practice, Casualty, Lewis, and the very long running series, Judge John Deed. Jenny's theatre work includes the title role in Jane Eyre at the Chichester Festival Theatre, King Lear in New York, Present Laughter with Tom Conti, Dead Guilty, Vertigo with her Judge John Deed co-star, Martin Shaw, Brief Encounter of the Lyric, Neil Simon's The Female Odd Couple at the Apollo, The Constant Wife, The Secret Rapture, and Night of the Iguana. She's also been in Absurd Person Singular, The Country Girl, Fallen Angels, The Exorcist, Hamlet, and The Cherry Orchard to mention just a few. Jenny is an animal rights activist and a vegan and helps run the charity Main Chance Sanctuary, which provides relief from suffering for horses and promotes humane behavior to all animals. Jenny lives with the theatrical producer and chairman of Everton Football Club, Bill Kenwright. So when you hear us talk about Bill, that's who we mean, not Bill Bailey, just to clear that up. So let's clear up the rest of it and find out the five things that Jenny Seagrove would choose to put in her time capsule. Hello.
1: Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. How are you, Mike?
0: I'm great, thank you. Nice to see you.
2: <laughs> um,
1: thank you well done. Oh, sorry about that that's it's, right your uh, lovely dogs my dogs are with me and the front door goes I
0: know I love looking at them running in the woods. They look so contented.
1: They are, bless them. And I I try, <laughs> I, I posted it during COVID to sort of give people who couldn't get out to the countryside something nice to look at. And it's become something where people go, I love them. Will you keep doing them? And I'm like, oh, OK. So <laughs> some mornings it's a real struggle to find something new to photograph or an angle to take and try and keep it positive. Yeah. Especially at the moment when everything's a little bit fragile and negative and you don't want to publicly admit that you're struggling a bit. No. You know.
0: No, it's difficult, isn't it? We all have to do that British thing of keep your chin up, you know.
1: And try and keep other people's chins up.
0: Fantastic. So I did tell you about Bill and the importance of him in my life, didn't I? Remind me. Well, when I was a student, my father told me that I was in a privileged position because nobody knew who I was. And so I could be as bold as I liked. And he said, just write to everybody, write to everybody who's in charge and say, you will regret not giving me a break.
1: Brilliant. I love it.
0: And so I did. And, you know, the only person to reply, and in fact, by phone, was Bill.
1: Good God. Yeah,
0: that sums him up. Mm. He's that kind of a guy. Extraordinary. It is extraordinary. He's given
1: so many people a start in this business.
0: And kept people going. Those theatres in London. He's responsible for keeping many of them alive, I think.
1: 100%. Mm. And in Covid just now, we were the first to do a a theatre show all last year. He opened up the theatre and we did Hamlet and the Cherry Orchard at Windsor Mm. with Sir Ian McKellen. His panto in Windsor didn't drop a single performance. Wow. I mean, quite extraordinary.
0: Yes, I know. Director's throwing dresses on all over the place. Yeah, absolutely.
1: (laughs) He's a total and amazing pioneer, stroke leader, stroke all-round good guy. Yeah. As well as doing stuff for Everton Football Club. So, I mean... I'm a little biased, Mike, but hey, it's lovely to hear somebody else saying the same thing.
0: No, and then the great thing is that having had that very strange, very early part of my career where he basically gave me a job as an ASM to get a card, twice I've bumped into Bill since then. Once I was walking past the old Vic and he got out of a car and said, Mike. Good God. I know. That must have been 15 years later. He said, come on, it's the opening night of present laughter. Come and have a watch.
1: Again, that's typical of Bill.
0: That he remembered me, I couldn't believe yeah, it.
1: so typical, saying, come on, come and see this show. Mm. Extraordinary man, I'm, I'm so privileged to be able to spend my life with him.
0: Lovely. Do send him my fondest love. I absolutely will. I have retained that, well, that love for him right through my career.
1: Good for you. Well done. Mm.
0: Okay, now we're going to talk about you. And we're going to talk, <laughs> does he want to go out? It's
1: the florist has arrived. <gasps> that's all right. Alfie, good boy. No need, Saturday <laughs> Settle down. And the trouble is, if I lock them out, then they'll scratch at the door and want to come in. Alf, settle. Alfie. Alf. Alf. Oh, hang on. I'm going to have to let them That's out. Right. But then I'm going to shut the door and they can't come back in. Hold on. All right. Okay. You are not coming back in. I see, Joey. Right. I'm now going to ignore if they claw at the door.
0: <laughs> oh.
1: God. Right. I'm yours.
0: Right. So we're going to talk about five things that you've chosen from any time in your life that you would like to preserve in a time capsule. That's four things that you cherish and one thing that you'd like to forget. That's it.
1: (laughs) It was actually really difficult. Really? Yes, really difficult to choose because there are so many things I want to Mm. keep. I mean, like all the collars of every dog that I've ever had, I wanted to keep and, Uh, you know, all sorts of photographs and things. And So whittling it down was really hard. Um, So I suppose I'd better start with the first thing. Yes, do. (laughs) I grew up with my brother. I've got an older brother uh, in Malaysia and Singapore. And because he's older, he went to school a bit earlier than me. I think they sent him off to boarding school because the expats, that's what they did when he was seven. Mm. When I was nine, I was sent off to boarding school. And we used to go as unaccompanied minors on BOAC, which for those that don't know, used to be the British Overseas Airways Corporation. Mm. And as an unaccompanied minor, you were given a tin. It was a white tin, about 12 inches long and about... (laughs) four inches in width and height and it was filled with sweets (laughs) and it was had little paintings of all different scenes from other countries on it and I've still got one somewhere it's not filled with sweets anymore (laughs) obviously but I'd like to keep it because it's a symbol of growing up in Malaysia and Singapore and Borneo and all the things that used to happen and flying back and living with my grandparents and visiting my aunts and the weird sort of nomadic life that we had as children and the old times. I'm not somebody who lives in the past very much. I tend to live in the present Mm. and I don't look back, but I'd quite like to keep this tin just as a sort of memento.
0: Yes. So were you happy going back and forth?
1: Well, initially I got horribly homesick. Mm. And, you know, we had people looking after us in Malaysia. So when I went to boarding school, I didn't even know how to make a bed. It's no. a dreadful thing to say. <laughs> um, and I, But I went to this little prep school called St. Hillary's. And it's funny how life goes because it sort of goes in ever decreasing circles i i've now i'm going to just jump a little bit into modern time i started a charity called main chance 10 mm. years ago or 10 years ago this year and we bought some land in Compton which is about 4 miles away from Godalming which is where st Hillary's, my prep school is oh. and so i've now regained contact with st Hillary's. and you know there was i think 20 boarders when i was going and the rest of them were day children and my first term there, I was so, so homesick, you know, in England in the winter mm-hmm. on my own. And I think we were allowed two baths a week and the rest of the time it was stripped washers and, and <laughs> they had a, a, a tuck day. So, you know, at six o'clock you were allowed two sweets or something. And not that I had a horribly sweet tooth, but... It was just so regimented, but the headmistress there was a great supporter of the arts, and she introduced me to poetry speaking out loud, and that sort of kindled my love of performing. I remember writing and directing and starring in my own plays in Hmm. their assembly hall, which has a stage, and Blue Gels. Blue Gels featured a lot in my productions, don't ask me why. (laughs) Um, And I grew to absolutely love this little school, In the holidays, most holidays, I'd go and live with my grandparents in Tunbridge. Then once a year, we went out to Malaysia as unaccompanied minors, desperately tried to get the best tan ever, (laughs) baked ourselves silly in the sun, which, of course, everyone knows now is absolutely the wrong thing to do, Mm. and then came back to England and settled down in, in school again. But it was... Oh, it was such a pretty, I mean, growing up in Malaysia, you know, we used to borrow a friend's speedboat and go and have a picnic on an island. And Mm. I remember swimming to the boat and then getting stuck because it became surrounded by jellyfish. And my mum was mad about animals and I used to go walking with her in, it wasn't difficult jungle, but we used to go walking the dogs in the jungle and swimming in bow. Which was a lake that was a bauxite mine or something, or maybe a gold mine that was filled with water. Mm. And you know, there were rumors that um, that's where the Japanese dumped dead bodies during the war. And and you'd Uh. be swimming in this beautiful, incredibly deep lake, thinking, oh, are there people underneath me?
0: It's quite a contrast, isn't it, to go from that, well, the vivid colours and uh, a bright light of those sort of places. And then suddenly you're in Godalming. Yes. With drizzle. Yes, drizzle, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) (laughs) How lovely, though, that you end up adoring this school.
1: Oh, I loved it. I just loved it the teachers two of them miss saunders and mrs washer took me under their wing and they called me donald duck because i walked with my you'd never get away with it these days but i walked with my feet slightly turned out yes and i remember we did greek dancing and i played apollo that's right and i had this wonderful gold costume and we always did this greek dancing outside round the school willow tree <laughs> um, it was just a really happy time happy happy time
0: Yes. I mean, I suppose really that's the contrast that people have when they go to boarding school. If you go to a school that is basically run on a system of encouragement and love and kindness, you end up being happy. And the opposite, of course, is true.
1: And I made friends... My friends were day girls, so I used to go and visit them in their houses mm. and sometimes go and stay during the holidays as well with some of them. And they're still friends from mm, how many years ago.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and we've remained friends. And it's, it's it's just lovely that one can keep that friendship across the years. And as I said, I don't like looking back, but just every now and then you do look back. And, and you know, St. Hilary's, we used to have a Christmas carol concert and we used to go down to the church of St. Peter and St. Paul in Godalming in our little crocodile down Holloway Hill to the church. And then one girl, one of my terms, it was a girl called Sarah Cronk, sang the solo of the first verse. I was always slightly jealous because I wanted to do that. but I actually don't think my voice was good <laughs> enough. And then we had the carol concert with file back up the hill, and my charity main chance has its Christmas carol concert at the church of St. Peter and St. Paul and St. Hillary's Always Send a Choir. Oh,
0: how lovely. And
1: one of them does a solo for the start of the carol concert, Once in all David City, first verse. Mm. Because I loved it so much. So that's my little tribute to my past and my relationship with that lovely school. And it is still a wonderful school. Their standard of all-round education. It's not just about education and the arts. They teach children inclusivity and diversity and morality Mm. at such a young age. And I'm really proud to be associated with that little school.
0: I fancy a visit. I'm not far from there. In fact, I'm in Tunbridge Wells, so not far from where your grandparents lived.
1: Oh, I know Tunbridge Wells very well. Yes, Mm. we used to go to the Pantiles in Tunbridge Wells. Yes.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm going to take that lovely BOAC box of sweets for you with all the pictures of different countries on it. And that sense of elegance that you had flying on those very long, thin planes when travel was rather special, I think.
1: Well, we used to stop at about five different places because Mm. they didn't have such a fuel capacity. So we'd stop off in Sri Lanka, which was then Ceylon. We'd stop in India. One time in India, in Delhi, the plane, one of the engines failed. So we took off and had to turn around and go back. And they put us up in the Ashoka Hotel I remember it because I had discovered, you know, I was only about 10 or 11 and my brother was a little bit older. Mm. And I remember being fascinated because there was a b day in the bathroom. and I was like, what is this? <laughs> and one of the kids on the flight tried to push me under in the swimming pool. Funny the things you remember. Mm. So that was obviously quite traumatic because I remember that. And a lot of tomato juice. <laughs> Tinned tomato juice. Yes. But it was it was quite a trauma. But there we were stuck in Delhi for a couple of days until either the plane was repaired or they got another plane for us.
0: How weird. Yeah. I once was supposed to land in Delhi and want to show you how long ago this was, Mrs. Gandhi had just died. <laughs> Yes, that's a long time ago. And the entire city was swathed in smoke because everybody was lighting fires to celebrate her life. So
1: they couldn't see to land?
0: They couldn't land, no. So bizarrely, we landed in Karachi in Pakistan and had to stay in a hotel there.
1: But in those days, some of the airports were literally just kind of wooden shacks. Mm. And you were delighted to get off because it was an adventure. Yeah. I remember leaving, walking up the steps, and I remember the last time leaving Malaysia feeling the heat and the warmth on my face and going, okay, I won't see you for another year. I won't have that feeling. And then stepping into the plane and watching over the however many hours it was, 17 hours, as my tan faded and my (laughs) skin became flaky and dry. (laughs) You know, in Kuching, because we lived in Kuching for a bit, I used to go with my father, who was in business there, and meet Dyaks in the local longhouses and... You know, it was a really privileged, diverse, colourful way to grow up, multicultural. Mm. It was really, really interesting.
0: OK, well, to remind you of that happy time, I'm going to put that little box into the time capsule as your first item. Lovely, thank you. You're very welcome. OK, let's move on to your second item.
1: Um As I said, I really struggled because I've had so many wonderful times in my life and, you know, you can't put them all in. So I thought I've I've tried to sort of take something from each particular time or section of my life, as it were, because one reinvents oneself all the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've starred in about 15 different West End plays. I've played most West End playhouses. And, And I say that with some pride because not many actors can say that. I think there's maybe two I haven't played. Mm -hmm. Bill always gives us opening night posters of each production. He frames them and he signs them. Everybody gets a poster signed by him. And so I'm going to ask you if you would uh, put aside for me the poster of Present Laughter, which Mm -hmm. was my first West End appearance, directed and starring Tom Conti. And we did, I think it was a three-month tour, and then we did a six-month run in the West End. And I played Joanna. It's by Noel Card for people who don't know. And she's a rather brittle sexual predator bitch. But Tom said to me, Jenny, I want you to play her Russian. So Joanna became Joanna. And instead of <gasps> darling, I've lost my latchkey, it was darling, darling, Gary, I've lost in my latchkey. We played around with, you know, Noel Card's English and made it sort of Russianized. And it released the comedy of this character because she suddenly went from being rather vicious and brittle to, mischievous and it released the humour and it was oh I had such fun oh I had such fun (laughs) and there was one time I mean it's a terrible story to tell but Judy Lowe and I and Tom were on stage Tom was sitting on the sofa downstage and Judy who played Tom's wife and I the mistress I had two lines to her very similar and this was in the West End, and I had a momentary, and it hardly ever happens to me, a momentary lapse of concentration. And I said the second line to her, and she answered it. Uh. And then I thought, oh, <laughs> oh, I don't know where to go now because I've missed the line out. And I looked at her, and she looked at me. And there was a small pause, and I, I thought, I'll ask Tom. He'll know what to say. So I said, got it, darling, what do you think? <laughs> Well, Tom was no help at all. He said, I don't know. I haven't been listening. At this point, I'm starting to heave with laughter. None of us know now because we're now completely lost. We have no idea who's the next line and what to say because we've just gone. Judy is heaving with laughter. Tom gets up off the sofa and heads off to the prompt corner off stage. So my character, Joanna, thinks, well, I'd follow Tom. Of course, Gary, I must follow Gary. So I leave the stage to follow Tom. (laughs) Judy doesn't want to be on stage by herself, so she leaves. The audience (laughs) applaud because they think we've now gone so badly that we can't stay on the stage. It's pandemonium at the prompt corner with Tom going, what's the
0: line? (laughs) Tell
1: me quickly. And the DSM going, oh, 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 here we are, here we are. So we go back on, we pick it up and we carry on. So the next night, we get to this bit and I say my line flawlessly. And then Judy says her line and there's a pause because Tom has the next line and he wants us to think he's dry.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) Devilish.
1: (laughs) And then we carry on. But it was, I, I mean, what I found from that is if you corpse or dry with aplomb. The audience mm-hmm. doesn't care. It's only when you look anxious about it, and they they then go, "Oh, this is a bit difficult. Oh, this mm. is embarrassing," and then they get all worried. But if you actually do it with style
0: and aplomb, admit that the thing is live. It's live. They love it. I've only ever seen Tom Conti live in whose life is it anyway?
1: Oh, he was that, brilliant in that. She was
0: absolutely brilliant yeah. in. He must have been a marvellous Gary Essendine.
1: He is impossible to make laugh because when you're on a long run, you do do things to just keep yourself occupied. I mean, apart from just refocusing every day, because I'm a great believer in being in the moment and playing it and being alive to anything new that comes at you, because that way you stay fresh. Mm. You do also need a little this, that and the other to just add some level of danger. And I thought, right, I'm going to make Tom corpse. So I decided (laughs) to get some brown contact lenses made. Now, I've got blue eyes, so brown lenses are quite startling and, you, you know, you notice them. So I got them made and I put them in and I thought, right, I'm going to enter with my brown contact lenses and he's bound to just not know what to do and, and either corpse or, or dry. Yes. So I walk on stage, he doesn't flinch. He does not flinch and within two minutes he says, darling, what lovely eyes you have. <laughs> And, of course, I go.
0: Yes, of course. So
1: I've shot myself in the foot completely.
0: It is nearly always the case that when you plan to make someone laugh, you make yourself Oh, it's laugh. a disaster.
1: It's you a always hopelessly. do because you're so excited about it. <laughs> yes, I know. And there's this whole bubble of anticipation going on underneath your character, which actually for Joanna was perfect because she's so mischievous, but it completely backfired on me. <laughs> <laughs> do
0: you know, I love that idea of becoming Russian because it's a difficult part, Joanna, because, as you say, it can come across as just being being bitchy and just being hard and and unpleasant. But in fact, with that foreign accent, quite often, if people are speaking English as a foreign language, they will inadvertently say things in a very abrupt way.
1: Absolutely.
0: Yes, it works fantastically well.
1: I thought it was genius, and it certainly worked for me playing her because I mined so much comedy out of that character. In fact, funnily enough, I love playing characters with different accents. And I've just recently played Gertrude to Ian McKellen's Hamlet. Mm. And I played Gertrude with a German accent. Everybody else was their own accents, English accents or Welsh or whatever. Pretty much standard English. And I decided that she was an outsider because, you know, in the old days, royalty did bring in people from neighbouring countries. You know, our British royal family brought in all sorts of Germans. So I played her with a slight German accent. And funny enough, I studied the Queen of Sweden, who was German. It wasn't a hard German accent. It was a soft one because my Gertrude had lived in Denmark since she was about 15, mm. but she'd never lost her accent, but it had softened. Well, I got, I love your Danish accent. <laughs> Why are you playing her with a foreign accent when everybody else is not? <laughs> Nobody understood. I think one critic understood, and all the rest were like, what is she doing? Well, for me, it's so clear she's an outsider mm. in a country where things are really quite unstable and it makes her more vulnerable. Mm. And it makes her relationship with Claudius much more interesting if she's not come through the Danish royal family.
0: And those scenes with her son would be quite touching, I think, done that way.
1: Well, they were because, you know, if you say Hamlet, with a slight German accent, it sounds slightly authoritarian. Mm-hmm. And you sort of imagine... Hamlet as a little boy with this Teutonic upbringing because I think royal families in those days didn't have a huge amount of the cuddly, touchy, feely stuff that we have these days. No. Ian loved it. Mm. He loved the fact that he had a, a German mother.
0: He's the first person I saw play Shakespeare professionally. Ian. Yes, I saw him at Stratford yeah. doing Romeo a long, long time ago.
1: Oh, mm. yes. Well, he's still an inspiration. Oh, without
0: a doubt, he's an extraordinary man.
1: To watch him working, the way he works, his curiosity, his energy, his love. I mean, we had a company, the Sean Mathias Company at Windsor, and we played Hamlet and the Cherry Orchard. And it was age-blind, gender-blind, colour-blind. And it was incredibly exciting. I think we are the, were the only company in England. I don't think there is another company that was doing what we did. Mm. And I was very, very proud of that.
0: I'm not surprised. Well, I love present laughter more than I like private lives, even. Mm. So I think that poster would be a fabulous thing to have, particularly as it's from Build. So <laughs> let's put that into the time capsule as your second item. Thank you very much. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Right, I hope you're having fun. We're going to take a short intermission here so that the podcast provider that you're listening on can, hopefully for us, fill the silence with ads. Thanks for bearing with us. We'll be back in a moment.
2: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started
0: welcome back to my time capsule and our guest jenny seagrove let's discover what else she'd like to put in her time capsule
1: so my third i can't not take a photo I've got a double negative anyway. I have to take a photo. (laughs) And, of course, you have to go through all the photos. So then you want to think of something that just fills you up with love, that warm, almost painful feeling you get in your chest. And it's got to be of my beloved Bill with my current two dogs, Georgie and Alfie. Georgie is a rather mad Springer Spaniel, and Alfie, they're both rescued. He's a Heinz 57. (laughs) The joy... All of my dogs have brought me joy. And each period of time when I've had a dog has its own story and its own love affair. But these are my current ones. And they've unlocked such love in Bill because he didn't grow up with dogs. He's allergic to dogs, but he's learned to live with them. And the the love he has of them has actually pretty much negated his allergy, Mm. which is extraordinary. And the love he has for these two dogs. And we live outside of London now. And he goes into London every day to the office and he drives back. The dogs probably sense him coming up the road. They certainly hear the car coming onto the gravel in the drive. Mm. And they rush to him and jump up and down and shriek at him. And he says it's the best part of his day, just coming home. And those dogs give me such joy. I mean, I'm not actually an urban person. I've lived in London for most of my life. As you know, I grew up in Malaysia. And then I trained at the Bristol-Vic Theatre School, which was amazing. And then I came to London because that's what you had to do as a young actor. And then I got into a relationship and eventually married and bought a cottage in Suffolk and then bought my dream house in Suffolk. And then, unfortunately, I got divorced. And so I gave my husband, my ex-husband, the cottage and we sold the big house (laughs) to pay the legal fees. (laughs) Um, Then I moved back to London. But just recently... The year before lockdown, we were having our London house refurb. This all sounds frightfully posh. And, um, <laughs> God, I should be so lucky. I am lucky. Um, it's Bill, he's worked so hard. And I said, well, we'll just have to move out for a bit. And he said, no, well, we'll rent somewhere. So we rented a house 45 minutes out of London. It had to be on the M40 because of Everton, because he needed to be able to access the M40 to go to the football games. Mm-hmm. So we found the place we're in now off the M40 somewhere. Yes. And <laughs> I loved it so much. I went back to London and I really, really struggled. And I said, gosh, do you think they'd sell the house? And he said, I don't know. But he rang them up without me knowing. And he said, do you want to sell? And they thought about it and they said yes. Oh, great. And in lockdown in 2020, we moved to this beautiful place where I have access to woods and fields and a huge garden and I open the doors and the dogs rush into it and there are owls and foxes and the sound of woodpeckers and red kite. It's just been joyous and it saved us through lockdown because, you know, it was awful watching Bill, who'd been to work every day of his life, watch his entire business crumbling in front of him. And bless him, you know, we created an office space for him and he put most of his staff on furlough and kept a skeleton staff and kept plotting how to get theatres going again and did and then had to put them back into cotton wool, and then opened up again and mm-hmm. then had to put them back into Cottonwood. We had so many stops and starts. And then I think he was the first at Windsor. I think we were the first live show when mm-hmm. lockdown eased. And this place... This house we're in now, I think, saved both of our sanities. Mm. And I get huge solace from nature. I always have. And I find it very, very important to how I live. At the moment, Mm. we're destroying nature as fast as we can. Mm. And I can't dwell on it because I get too upset. But it is a a source of huge sadness. Um, I was, I am a trustee of the Born Free Foundation. Mm -hmm. And I remember a trustees meeting years ago when one of the other trustees rushed in in great high dudgeon and said, I've just learned something. And he explained that one of his daughters was a Hebrew scholar. And there's a word, something like retak, which essentially the essence of it means stewardship of the earth, which means we have a responsibility Mm. to look after This was translated later and to turn into dominion over.
0: Right. It's for us rather than our responsibility.
1: Correct. Yes. And I I suddenly understood the problem I'd had because I do believe we have a duty to be stewards. Mm -hmm. We do not have the right of dominion over. And I feel that really strongly. And it's a sort of guiding passion of mine for my charity, Main Chance, where Mm. we have 38 rescued horses and I try, as with all the animals in my life, to treat them as sentient equals, as partners in life, rather than as just things that I can do what I want to. And I do unto them As I think were I an animal, I would want done, as it were. Yes. Nature is our great teacher. D.H. Lawrence wrote lots of poems referring to nature and the godly geranium poem where, you know, imagine that God ever created that beautiful flower. And Mm. you do sometimes, you look at a flower and you go, who thought of this? (laughs) And when you look into nature and you actually discover the miracles, the beauty of how it works. I mean, trees, they have all these mycelium. I think that's what they're called underneath the ground. Mm. And they're all talking to each other. <laughs> Amazing. And, you know, they're telling each other, hey, watch it, mate. There's somebody with a chainsaw six miles away. Yeah, It is extraordinary. And, and I remember going on safari in South Africa. And learning about how trees there warn other trees that, that, that there are giraffes coming. Ah. They shut their leaves off and then put out, I think it's a scent and other trees then shut their leaves off.
0: <laughs> Amazing. They, they've
1: got to, I mean I've probably got my facts wrong but I do know We that,
0: don't care about facts on this podcast Oh do we not? No, no, we like I think this, that's good enough for me
1: Well nature is so miraculous and you know it's scientific it's mathematical, it's beyond what we can even begin to imagine in its communication. I I do firmly believe that we are all connected by a web of life and that it's like tuning into another radio station. And if you tune in, I've had moments of deep connection with horses, with other people, with dogs, where I'm like, gosh, where did that come from? Hmm. Really profound experiences. And you can't, you can't make those up. That wonderful American Indian chief who says, whatever we do unto the web, we do to ourselves. We are all part of it. Mm. And I feel it so strongly. And if you understand that we are all connected, you have to live with empathy.
0: Quite. Well, it's a lovely thing to have that photograph of Bill with your dogs in the time capsule.
1: My special Bill. Yes. Yeah, what an extraordinary man he is and how incredibly lucky I am. We've been together now 29 years. Hmm. Oh, I can't believe it feels like yesterday, but you say that as you get older.
0: (laughs) Don't you just? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, nobody young listening to this will believe that. Never mind. That goes into the time capsule for you. Thank you. So we move on to item number four.
1: Yes, well, um, I started 10 years ago, a charity called Main Chance Sanctuary, and it happened out of an accident and that I'd been helping a woman I knew who, unfortunately, collected animals. And she was one of those people that it sort of becomes a mental illness, and you can't say no. And she got more animals than she could look after or afford. Mm. But she rang me. She said, "Jenny, haven't fed the horses for three days. They're kicking the stables. What do I do?" Oh Lord. And I thought, well, I can't keep giving you money because this will just go on and on. So I said, "Don't worry, I'll take responsibility. We'll form a charity. We'll do this properly." Mm. So I did. I pushed through. Uh, We called it Main Chance. And I rang all my friends and I said, can you give me some money? I put my own in. And I found 40-something acres outside Guildford because a friend of a friend said, yeah, you can go there rent-free, but next year I'm selling it. And then... 2012, because this all started in the end of 2011, the sale fell through of this land. And he said, do you want to buy it? And I laughed because I haven't got that kind of money. Hmm. But I persuaded two other people I know to put in some money. And I sold a flat and put it in. And we put the money together into an LLP. And we bought the land. And we let Main Chance be there for a peppercorn. And I rehomed half the horses and all the other animals to another sanctuary. I was left with 20 horses. And I kind of thought, oh, okay, what do I do now? (laughs) I'm a working actress and I now run a sanctuary, it would seem. (laughs) And I'd always known the power of horses with people. And we started taking a couple of our little Shetland ponies to the local hospice. And I saw the profound effect it had on these terminally ill children. So I thought, right, I'm going to actually create something here where horses aren't ridden. They aren't jumped. They aren't used for horse meat. They are, as it were, healers. And so I decided not to be the usual place where the horses come in and rehabilitate and then rehomed. I said, no, we're going to keep all the horses we have here and they are not going to be field ornaments. We're going to rehabilitate them and we're going to bring in old people, sick children, children with mental health issues. And they're going to spend time with the horses in this caring, empathetic loving atmosphere of trust, and it's going to change their lives because the horses will help them, and it has. Mm. And I created something called Chance to Be, which is a mindfulness-based course where we essentially, well, the horses teach young children with either huge anxiety or or emotional regulation or eating disorders or self-harming, and they come for 12 weeks in groups of nine. And they basically learn mindfulness, because if you want to be with the horse successfully, certainly with our horses anyway, who haven't shut down because they're allowed to express themselves, you have to be calm. And if you've got high energy with your mind, busy turning over with anxiety or anger or any of those issues, the horse will just walk away. Mm. So the children can see that from the horse's behavior. And because they want to be with the horse's, they start to want to learn the breathing exercises and the mindfulness tools that we give them.
2: Mm.
1: And they're only very, very short little meditations. And we've really turned some young people's lives around. So I come on to this because one of our wonderful supporters decided she was going to, she was so inspired by the work we do, she was going to create a book because she also Um, supports Born Free, of which I'm a trustee, Mm. and um, Animals Asia, who rescue bears from viral pits. And she wanted to create a book, which was, it's called A Legacy of Love. And it's a hardback coffee table book filled with articles from myself and Jill Robinson and Gary Hodges, who does wildlife drawings, and Martin Shaw, who's done a piece about being vegetarian, and Virginia McKenna's done the preface. And it's basically a love story to nature, to animals, to birds, and a lot of charities and the work they do. Mm. And she's put together this book filled with these inspirational chapters and beautiful photographs and drawings and all sorts of things. So I want a copy of Legacy of Love to come into the time capsule because it reminds me of the Born Free Foundation and all my work there and going down to Shamwari down in South Africa and seeing some lions that we rescued walk onto the grass in the place where they should have been. And it reminds me of Main Chance and all the stuff I do with the horses. It reminds me of how the natural world should be. So I think this time capsule would has to have a copy of Legacy of Love.
0: Yes, I agree. My brother runs a farm, which he started as a charity for people with mental problems and social problems in Suffolk. It's called Pathway Care Fund. I'll have a look. The same thing, he found a piece of scrap land. And he's turned it into this extraordinary thing. And people that go there, they look after the animals, they grow vegetables, they do a bit of digging.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful.
0: It is wonderful.
1: Not every child can cope with mainstream education. No. It's not right for a lot of them. In fact, we've joined up with the AQA Unit Awards. It's a national scheme, and we've written about 150 awards from very, very basic uh, how to head collar a horse to... Right up to quite complicated how to deal with a horse with colic. Mm. And it's the same thing, it's children who really can't cope with mainstream education, but they come to us and they do these awards, they're properly certified, they have to qualify. And then they get given a certificate and, you know, you could see the smiles on their faces of achievement from the moon if you stood on the moon because yes. they're so proud because it's usually the first time they've ever actually achieved anything <laughs> and been told that they were good and, and clever and worthwhile.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And, you know, just getting your hands dirty. And, and we grow food for our hens and we do site maintenance. Just the care for the horse we poop poopick they have to muck in with all of that. Yes. And they just blossom. Mm. Not all of them. Some of them don't want to be there, but that's a tiny number, tiny number of all the children that come through our doors. Mm. So congratulations to your brother. Michael Mopogo does the same. He started City Farm. Ah. He and his wife have got City Farm. I think they've got a couple of farms where they get urban children up to help look after the animals and Very successful. And he tells a story. We've had the same thing. Children who are mute start talking to the animals.
0: Wow. Well, that's amazing. For a lot of these children, this whole, this is the system you follow, doesn't work for them at all. Mm. When you think about your own childhood and finding that lovely school in Godalming Mm. and those people who encouraged you and led you into something that you loved, you know, just through poetry speaking, and your whole life has been led that way. Well,
1: I was going to be a vet,
0: but... (laughs) But you would have taken every sick animal home with you.
1: (laughs) I would. I absolutely would. Put it down? I can't put it down. I'll take it home, you know.
0: Yeah. And how far back does your vegetarianism go?
1: my early 20s. Mm. I grew up not vegetarian. I'm sad that I, you know, some children see very early on that it's not right to eat animals and it's not right to do this and that and the other. And I didn't. Mm. I'm trying to make up for it now.
0: Yes. That reaction of almost every child when they first realise that they are eating an animal not just this thing called meat.
1: I mean, it's all so far from the animal these days. It's mm-hmm. all, you know, in little plastic containers or, or on slabs somewhere. I remember doing um, The Miracle Worker with a young actress. She wasn't actually that young. She was about 20, but she was playing Helen Keller. And we were on tour and we were on a train and she looked out and she saw cows and she'd never seen a cow before. And a lot of kids now, because so many children grow up in urban environments, have no relationship to nature at all. No. And it's just such a shame.
0: Yes, I worked with Simon Amstel on a television thing where he was looking at the world where it is vegetarian, where the world has turned Mm. vegetarian. Mm. And working on it, reading through the script and the arguments for it, I thought... This is almost inevitable. I can't really see any other option.
1: Well, it really has to go vegan, actually, because vegetarian involves cows.
0: Yes, we'd become a vegan world. It has to. Yeah, I know.
1: That's something to look forward to, isn't it?
0: Well, I think there's no reason why it shouldn't be.
1: There's plenty of beautiful food without having to eat meat. Vegan food is delicious nowadays. It used not to be, but nowadays it is. It's wonderful. Mm. But the way animals are farmed in many places now and the way they're killed and the way they're transported on their way to being killed is so unpleasant that it just... It's too awful to contemplate.
0: Yes, my wife was a research scientist for many years and worked on, well, she mostly was trying to work on human blood, but of course pig's blood is very similar. Mm. So she would go to a local abattoir and collect pig's blood and the animals were never stressed and very rarely (laughs) did any of her experiments go wrong. And then that abattoir was closed and she had to go to a much larger abattoir and constantly at least 50% of experiments she did on that pig blood was tainted.
1: I'm not surprised mm. because of the stress levels in the blood. Mm-hmm. No, it's just so sad. I'm getting sad and I don't want to be sad. No, don't get sad.
0: Don't get sad. We will put a copy of Legacy of Love into the time capsule for you. Thank you. To remind you of that brilliant work and also to mention that if anybody is going to look it up, uh, it's M-A-N-E main chance, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is M-A-N-E, absolutely main chance. Oh, it's lovely. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. Okay, we have one final item to put in there, which is something you'd like to get rid of, but I think we've already discussed several things. Yeah, we have.
1: This is going to have to be a huge great big hole because it's actually a private zoo in Belgium and this goes back to I've been a trustee of the board free foundation since 2004 so it's about 18 years Mm -hmm. before I was a trustee Virginia and her team said to me would I come on a rescue we'd got permission to to rescue two lions from a private zoo in Belgium No other animals because it was privately owned and they could only get take these two lions out. So I said, Yes, I'd love to be part of that. And it was quite touch and go because there was quite a lot of emotion around it because the owner didn't want the lions going. But we'd got these licenses and we were going to take them and bring them back to the sanctuary in Kent. Mm. And from there, they'd eventually end up in Shamwari in South Africa. So I remember going to the zoo and I've never forgotten the small enclosures. Concrete, bars, this old brown bear gnarled with arthritis, just sitting there, just in despair. A black panther in a small concrete area walking up and down. You you gone mad? Mm. I just stood and cried, Mike. I stood and cried because we were leaving all these animals in this private zoo in their pain and their despair and their unhappiness. And we were taking two lions. That's all we could take. Mm. And I would like to put that zoo into a time capsule where I never have to think about it again. Yes. I'd like to get rid of it off the face of the earth.
0: Mm. What is it that makes people want to do that, want to have that sort of control over animals, and yet not out of love, not out of admiration, just out of ownership?
1: I don't know is the truth. I think there's an ignorance. Um, I mean, I have a problem with all zoos and they hide behind conservation. And I'm sorry, you can conserve animals in the wild. You don't have to have them. No matter how big the area they're in, it's still too small for them. And it is this sort of, well, you know, it's a way of educating people to see that uh, all these animals exist. And I'm like, well, we can see them on camera now. You don't need a zoo.
0: No. I think David Attenborough has already done that.
1: Exactly. And I wish every single zoo and every circus that still uses wild animals would just be shut down. You know, animals are extraordinary. I mean, we've got a horse at the sanctuary who was beaten and beaten, and she wouldn't trust anybody. She was so upset by what had happened to her. And she came to us pregnant, and and she had a tether round her neck because she'd been tethered to a goalpost to give birth, and somebody had cut her loose. Uh. We rescued her and her daughter, who was also pregnant, And it took nine months to get the tether off her and then years before she'd trust us. But she now is one of the first horses to step forward to work with people because she does trust us. And, you know, these animals who've suffered so much still have the capacity to love and trust. And you just think, how is that possible? You watch these these bears Animals Asia rescue from these dreadful bile farms where they've spent 20 years in these brutal cages with this bile stuff attached to their stomachs and they rescue and they put in these sanctuaries and they start playing. And oh, the capacity for bounce back is, it's extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Animals, they lead the way in every single way. And humans' capacity for greed and cruelty is, oh, but our capacity for good and humanity and kindness is also, so, you know, for as many awful people that you find and when you run an animal charity you find some pretty awful people you also find almost as many if not more wonderful people with huge hearts and the capacity for good
0: yes but maybe as you say or as you said early on that whole view that we have dominion over all these creatures that they're ours to command that's the thing that's wrong that's what we need to change mm. we need to form a partnership with them we need to we need to be their friends Not their owners.
1: Exactly. We need to treat them equally.
0: Mm. I've not... This is shameful, really, but I don't know anything about the bears in the pits with bile pits. I don't know anything about that.
1: Oh, it's hideous. The Chinese and the Vietnamese and and some of the Asian countries believe that bear bile is medicinally terribly Ah, important for all sorts of things.
0: Good Lord.
1: And so the bears are captured as cubs and farmed. The bear bile is farmed, and they're literally spend their lives unable to move properly in these cages.
0: Oh, God.
1: Where they go mad and they've got this thing inserted into their bile ducts and the bile is farmed every day from them. Animals Asia has these sanctuaries now where they negotiate and maybe a farm shuts down and they take the bears to the sanctuary and the bears live out the rest of their lives in happiness and joy. Mm. But the actual bear bile farms still exist. It's really horrible. Mm. It is my understanding that in older China, they believed that animals didn't have feelings and didn't feel pain. So you could do what you want. Whereas anyone who spends any time with an animal knows they have pain, they have emotions, they think, they feel, they have social lives. Mm -hmm. If you watch animals together, they have intensely complex social lives. And to do these kind of things to animals is just so barbarically cruel.
0: Yes, I completely agree. And so I'm going to take that dreadful private zoo. I cannot understand why people are allowed, simply because they have money, to form their own private zoo, to just buy animals and put them in a cage, just because you can afford it. So absolutely, we will bury that. And hopefully you'll never have to be worried by it again. Thank but you. it would be much nicer if we could just close it down. It would,
1: wouldn't it? Yes. Wouldn't it
0: <laughs> well, how lovely it's been to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jenny.
1: Well, we've ended on rather a, a somber note, really, Mike, haven't we?
0: Well, you know, life can be somber. Yeah. I wouldn't worry about things being somber. You know, sweet and sour.
1: Into every life, some rain must fall. Yeah,
0: and I think we've looked at both.
1: i looked at things from both ways. (laughs) Uh, I can't remember, I'm not going to sing anymore.
0: (laughs) No, no, unless you'd like to sing a solo version of Once in Royal David City.
1: No, I wouldn't. No. Thank you very much. No, I don't think your listeners would want me to either, Mike.
0: (laughs) Well, lots of love and send my love to Bill.
1: You too, Mike. Have a great day.
0: You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, Jenny Seagrove. Thank you for supporting this podcast by listening. Every listen counts, I promise you. So if you'd like to help us further, then please subscribe, rate, and even maybe review this podcast you can follow us on twitter instagram and facebook to see what we're up to and you can download or stream the theme tune on spotify if you fancy a bit of a rave it was written by past the peas music so they'll be very grateful for the 0.001p it'll earn them or something life-changing like that this was a cast-off production for a cast our producer was john fenton stevens Now, please do take the time to look at the information alongside this episode, especially the link to Jenny's charity, Main Chance. And I hope you stay with us for the next episode out soon. Or you can go back in time and hear some of the many episodes we've already released. And do keep a lookout for this podcast near you in the near future. Yes, that's right. Like a lot of podcasts, we are considering performing live. Good idea, do you think? I did a little tryout at a local theatre last week, and it was interesting. The theatre was packed. Not that there were many people there. When I say packed, I mean more in the mass suicide sense of the word. Bye.